Father, we give you thanks for your word that speaks to us and reveals things about us, reveals things about you. We pray as we read your word and preach your word and apply to our lives that your Holy Spirit would be present to help us. We ask this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Good morning. There are uh, two points upon which secular science, as it currently stands in Christian theology, have agreement about the origin of life. And they are, uh, they both agree that life has a beginning, that, uh, that all of this began at some point. That's actually a much more radical idea than you might have thought. And the second thing is that both agree that life has made progress through violence. And I want to say uh, two quick things about that. Here is, uh, here's thing number one. Pre-Christian philosophy, Aristotle, said there was no beginning to the universe. So when Jewish theologians like Moses and when later Christian theologians like Paul began to say that there was a beginning to all of this, it was actually a pretty radical idea. They were going against the best science that they had of the day. So when we say that, that Christians and secular scientists both agree that there's a beginning, it's, uh, it's much more of a serious thing than you might have been led to believe. And there's not nearly as much controversy on these points as you might have thought. In fact, uh, Stephen Hawking, a uh, recently deceased theoretical physicist, cosmologist, director of research at the Center for Theoretical Cosmology at the University of Cambridge, he actually said on the creation of the universe or, or the beginning of the universe, the odds against a universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications to this. He went on to say it would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just this way except as an act of God who intended to create beings like us. So on this point, and uh, especially with my work in college students, I want to emphasize that there's not nearly as much disagreement as you might have been led to believe uh, upon many points of science, but on this, on the beginning of the world, we have an agreement that there was a beginning, and we have agreement that there are implications for that. Now here's the second thing, and it's a bit more controversial. Both uh, the best of secular science and, and Christians believe that life has progressed through violence. It's important to know there's a difference between progress and progress through violence. One is called evolution, that's progress. The other is called Darwinism, that's progress through violence. There's a big difference between these two things. The ancients, including ancient Christians, believed in evolution, the change in characteristics of one species over generations. In fact, the patriarch Jacob appeared to have been quite an acute student of evolutionary biology long before Darwin and long before Richard Dawkins wrote The Selfish Gene. Jacob was practicing selective breeding to produce stronger, healthier sheep. That's in Genesis chapter 30. You can read all about it. That's progress. That's evolution. It's not progress through violence. It's not Darwinism. Progress through violence, or what social Darwinist Herbert Spencer described as the survival of the fittest, is quite a different thing from the benign process of Jacob's sheep. Progress through violence occurs when weaker life forms are eliminated by or outsurvived by stronger life forms as both struggle for life. That can be interesting and relatively harmless. Like when the long necks of a Galapagos turtle help it to outsurvive its shorter necked brethren 
in the competition for scarce resources, but it can also be pretty disturbing, as is the case with the elimination of Tasmanian natives by European settlers in the 19th century. Dispassionately described by the Darwinian scientist D.R. Oldroyd in his book Darwinian Impacts. Listen to what he says. Consider a simple case of natural selection arising from the struggle for existence. One group, the European settlers, survived. Another group, the Tasmanians, failed to survive. Surely it's perfectly clear this may be explained in terms of some criterion of fitness, say the possession of firearms. That is quite separate from the contingent fact the Europeans survived. Thus, we can readily see the example as an empirical exemplification of the principle of natural selection and the survival of the fittest. The elimination of Tasmanian natives is progress, in the sense that the story of their existence progressed from thriving to extermination. But few people would say it represented progress in the sense that the lives of Tasmanians or European settlers or humanity as a whole was greatly enriched or improved upon by strong men with guns wiping out relatively weaker men without them. Nevertheless, it was progress in a sense, and it was progress through violence. Here again, the story of the Bible is not enormously different. The unfolding of human history outside of the garden begins with what? A murder. As two brothers compete for what they believe to be scarce resources. And the story progresses. According to the biblical narrative, human history progressively unfolds as a history of violence. But there's a critical difference between the account of progress through violence, described by secular science, and the survival of the fittest. In the Christian account, competition, struggle, and violence are progress, but they are progress away from God. Progress away from our better selves. Progress away from the most evolved version of humanity. Such things, the, the evidence of such things in this world is not evidence that everything is going according to plan, that all is well, that things are getting better. They're evidence that all is not well. Hence, we have a command in a world where might makes right, in a world where violence makes sense, in a world where we would have a hard time imagining what it would look like not to compete, we have the command, thou shalt not kill. Which I hope you're beginning to appreciate means more than thou shalt not take a hammer and bludgeon thy neighbor's head because he left his garbage on your lawn. <laughs> but it has much broader implications than merely taking a life. So here's the things to look at. What is murder? What does it say about human nature? That it exists amongst us. What is God's answer to these things? Well, here's where we can start. What is murder? There's a story told in Tanzania about a boy named Perimbi. And Perimbi's hunting for leopards because he can take the leopard pelt and he can sell it at the market and make enormous profit. And he comes upon a leopard and he murders the leopard. It's, uh, it's the mother to a cub. And he has pity on the leopard cub. And he brings the cub back to the village. And the chief becomes outraged. And the chief says, leopard cub becomes grown leopard. And grown leopard kills. And Perimbi says, we're going to raise it differently. We're going to treat it differently. And it won't do what you say that it will do. All goes according to plan. The grown leopard 
is kind to children and adults until one day Perimbi trips and he cuts his arm and the leopard he has raised since a cub licks human blood and his nature emerges and he kills Perimbi and little leopard becomes big leopard and big leopard kills. Yeah. So when Jesus addresses this command about uh, thou shalt not kill in the Sermon on the Mount, this is what he has to say about it. You know our ancestors were told, do not murder. A murderer must be brought to trial. But I promise you, if you're angry with someone, you have to stand trial. If you call someone a fool, you'll be taken to court. If you say that someone's worthless, you'll be in danger of the fires of hell. Might seem pretty handed for Jesus to equate being angry with someone with murder. Even worse for him to suggest that an angry person is going to share the same fate as a murderer. The same judgment as a murderer. The same punishments as a murderer. After all, there's a moral difference between a person who simply experiences the emotion of anger in line at the airport, which I take to be a universal thing, <laughs> and the person who acts on his anger and ends another's life. But what Jesus is is alerting us to is that murder is a leopard and anger is its cub. Little leopards grow up to be big leopards and big leopards kill. To the very first question we wanted to tackle today, what is murder? Murder is full-grown anger. That's what murder is. What does murder say about human nature? But minimum, it says each of us is nursing something in our hearts. That if we were to see full grown in someone else, would be horrific and repulsive. That each one of us is nursing it in our hearts. And that should be enough to give us pause about what this says about human nature. But there's more that we can say about this. James asks in his own letter, why do you fight and argue with each other? To which he answers, isn't it because you're full of selfish desires that fight to control your body? You want something you don't have. And he adds, you'll do anything to get it, won't you? You'll even kill. I don't know if you ever saw the film Mississippi Burning, the disappearance of civil rights activists in Mississippi in 1964 is is what that film is about. Centers on two FBI agents, one northerner named Ward, he's played by Willem Dafoe, and he asks his, his companion, Anderson, southern lawman, played by Gene Hackman, where does this come from, all this hatred that they're seeing in Mississippi in 1964? As churches are being blown up and burnt to the ground, as people are being harassed, and chased about and killed? Where does it all come from? And this is what Anderson, the Southern woman, this is what he says. When I was a boy, there was an old black farmer who lived down the road from us. And he bought himself a mule. That was a big deal around that town. Now my daddy hated that mule because his friends were always kidding him about all they saw Monroe out plowing with his new mule and Monroe was going to rent another field. Now they had a mule. One morning that mule just showed up dead. They poisoned the water. After that there was never any mention about that mule around my daddy. 
just never came up. So one time we were driving down the road and we passed Monroe's place and we saw it was empty. He just packed up and left. Going up north or something, I guess. I looked over at my daddy's face and I knew he'd done it. And he saw that I knew. And he was ashamed. I guess he was ashamed. He looked at me and he said, if you ain't better than one of them, son, who are you better than? Why do you fight and argue with each other? Isn't it because you're full of selfish desires that fight to control your body? You want something, you don't have it. You will do anything to get it. You'll even kill. Now Anderson's daddy didn't have to kill Monroe to get what he wanted. He just had to kill the mule and what did he get? He got to be better than Monroe. That's it. The story of Anderson's daddy is a story of progress. Not progress in the sense that things are getting improved upon, but progress in the sense that history is moving day to day. It's progressing. And how is it progressing? It's progressing through violence. The survival of the fittest, the struggle for existence, and the dark, unholy, demonic truth is that only the strong progress through violence. Only the strong who survive are declared to be fittest. Only the strong who survive the struggle for existence. It can be seen when Tanzanian settlers are wiped out by European explorers. It can be seen when mules suddenly go disappearing from African American farms in the deep south. It can be seen in places you and I are maybe more comfortable with. When businessmen adopt the metaphor of killing competition, when parents begin to teach their children that Johnny's not a playmate, he's a rival. He's a co-competitor. And there are limited scholarships, limited spots to set you up. And you've got to be quicker, faster, stronger, and smarter than your fellow human being. What's the implication? Because you've got to wipe him out so you can get that spot. It can be seen in college admission scandals. It can be seen in politics where governing has totally given way to the bare nihilistic pursuit of power for power's sake. What does it say about human nature? It says that you and I are fundamentally insecure about our place in the world. Where we belong, that we selfishly pursue these things, that we have wholesale bought into the notion that life is a struggle for existence, where only the fit survive, where progress is only achieved through violence. We see it manifest in our personal lives. We see it manifest in our institutions. We see it manifest in our politics. We see it manifest in our Christian apologetics where we're not trying to persuade and win and love, but where our people have populated YouTube with videos like, Own the Atheists! <laughs> Don't win the soul, win the argument! 
progress through violence. What's God's answer to these things? I'll tell you one last story. It's the story of my, my favorite book of all time. It's John Steinbeck, East of Eden. It's a story of sibling rivalry. Two brothers competing for fatherly affection. The violence that unfolds as they compete. Most of the story is dedicated to one of the brothers now grown. His name is Adam. He has two sons, Cal and Aaron. And they are competing for their father's love. And about midway through the story, Adam begins to read the Bible and he comes across a Hebrew word, timshel, and it just means thou mayest. And the idea is thou mayest give in to violence or thou mayest do something else. Well, Adam has to learn what Tishmael means in the most intimate and painful way because as Cal and Aaron are competing for their father's love, Cal begins to understand he's on the losing end of it. So he engineers the accidental death of his own brother. So he can be the only son that his father loves. Cal's actually racked with guilt because when the father finds out he's lost one of his boys, he has a stroke. He's bedridden. He's dying. And Cal decides he needs to unfold this secret before his father, before he dies. And so, so in the final pages of the book, if you planned on reading it, I am ruining it for you right now. <laughs> but I'm comfortable doing this because I've read a study that people enjoy the ending more if they know it. It's in the New York Times. So if you're angry with me for ruining this book, I'm going to give you that study and you can think about it. And then we'll talk it out later. <laughs> Cal comes in and, and he confesses to his father. And his father has a, an opportunity to meet force with force, to meet violence with violence, and it'd be entirely justified. And of course, the violent thing for a, a bedridden, dying man to do to his son, the, the murderous thing that would do something much deeper than ending a heartbeat is, is his father can just curse him. But this word pops up, thou mayest. And what Adam does, and it's the last thing he does alive, is he extends his arm to his son, who just confessed murdering his other son. He extends his arm to him, and he blesses him. And what, what John Steinbeck is saying is what ends the cycle of this history of violence is when one person decides not to participate, extends the arm, and undoes it all with a blessing. And that is actually the story of what God has done in this history of violence. Thou mayest wipe us out from the earth. And for those of you comfortable with the idea of God's love and God's grace, this is every bit as novel to the ancient world as the beginning of it. I've read through the pagan myths of the Japanese, of 
the Middle East, of the Norsemen, of the Native Americans. I can tell you that none of them imagined, if they were to have a divine encounter, none of them imagined it would go pleasantly. The great expectation of the divine encounter is an, an accounting for sins and being wiped out. God could participate in this and be well within His rights as an offended, aggrieved, and afflicted person. But what God does in Jesus Christ is He extends a naked, weak, friendless, chained, despised arm. And from the cross on Golgotha, the last act of Jesus before his death is to bless this world. Don't you know I could call down legions of angels and put a stop to this? Don't you know I could participate? Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And three days later, the resurrection of Jesus throws a wrench in the gears of the history of violence and grinds it to a halt in a small community of people who say, we have seen the Lord. So let me close with two applications for you. Here's application number one. If you are in Christ, Thou shalt not murder means so much more than thou shalt not strike down thy fellow man. It means I'm not going to participate in the struggle for existence. I am not going to push in front of a spot in line because I'm so desperate to make sure when the fittest are away, I'm on top. What it means is, as people who've been blessed by God, we are free to use our bodies and our minds, our material wealth and our best intentions for the blessing of others. That's what it means. And it means that we're part of a 2,000 year old community that is throwing a wrench in the history of violence. And it grinds to a halt all around us. It grinds to a halt on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. It grinds to a halt with the Vicar of Baghdad. It grinds to a halt at St. Thomas's Church. It grinds to a halt. And I want you to take that seriously. Jesus Christ can expand your imagination outside of an endless competition with your neighbor. Here's thing number two. If you're exploring Christianity, the thing I would really, really want you to take seriously is this. What would you imagine a divine encounter would result in? Now that you've been introduced to an idea that you're nursing a cub that could grow into something that you would be repulsed and horrified by. 
what would you imagine a divine encounter would be like for you? And what if the divine encounter is exactly what we just said? A God waiting to extend an arm to bless you. And in the cycle of this thing in your own heart, if it's true, wouldn't it be worth everything you have to discover if it was? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word and the richness of it, and we pray, Lord Jesus, that this would sink deep into uh, our soul and would undo, undo generations of sin and trauma and violence, that we could begin to be the, the, the community and the church you imagine living under the forgiveness of Jesus. Amen. Amen.